following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118. As we reflect on his word before we pray. The psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. For it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. And I'll recount the deeds of the Lord. For the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. For blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, it is our great privilege and our great joy to gather in your name and in your place today. To be able to join our voices together today and to say, proclaim that your steadfast love endures forever. We are grateful for that truth, Lord. We are grateful that there is nothing, nothing on this earth, nothing beyond this earth, nothing in our experience, nothing in our behavior, nothing that can separate us from your unfailing and enduring and steadfast love. We can say with the psalmist this morning, the Lord is on our side. We will not be afraid. What can men do to us? We trust in you, Lord. We look to you this morning. We count on you for everything. We understand and believe that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so then anything that there's good in our lives, we, we, we look to you and give thanks this morning. And for much we have reason to give thanks, for you have been truly good to us. And we can identify with the psalmist as well because we know what it's like to go through those seasons when we feel like we're falling and our strength is weak. We cry out to you.
And you become our strength and our shield. You help us. We know what it is to be helped by you, and we give thanks for your glorious help in our lives. And Lord, no doubt some have come this morning with challenges in their lives, with challenges in their families, with, with things going on that perhaps those around them don't know. But you know, O oh Lord, and you can help. I pray that in their hearts this morning they would look to you. They would look to you and believe that your steadfast love endures even toward them. And that even in the midst of whatever's going on, Lord, that your love endures and that you're present with them to be a helper. Lord, I pray that you'd lift our spirits this morning, that you would encourage us. Now, God, we pray that you would help us to see with greater clarity a vision of your son this morning. That we would understand even more fully as we look to your word who Jesus is and what he came to do on our behalf. And that the result in our lives would be pure worship from our hearts, pure devotion with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we open up your word and study, we pray that you'd open up our minds to grasp and understand what you have for us today. That we would see it, that we would see our own lives in light of it, and that we would respond as your Holy Spirit leads us. Bless the preaching of your word this morning, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. And once again here this morning, I ask you to bear with me as I uh, kind of sniffle, sniffle my way through the message. Um, still kind of battling this nasty bug that doesn't want to let go. This morning we're going to look to the Gospel of John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. John writes, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As we jump in on the text this morning, uh, we jump in on what is a, a, a very interesting and fascinating and yet on the surface a very confusing day, a confusing sort of event Really for everyone involved except for Christ. If you haven't been tracking with us through the Gospel of, of John, uh, just to give you a bit of, of recap here, what we've, what we've entered into in chapter 12 of this Gospel is we've entered into John's recounting of the last week of Jesus' life, the last week of our Messiah's life. Uh, we've, we've covered in 11 chapters all of his life and his ministry, some three years or perhaps a little more. 
Uh, all of that condensed into 11 chapters. The last tw- 10 chapters, chapter 12 to the end of the book, uh, focus in with, with crystal clear clarity on the last week of his life. For the first ten chapters, we've seen Jesus teaching, and we've watched him do miracles, and we've heard him say things. And throughout that time, there have been those who have caught glimpses of who he was, the Messiah, come to save. And for some of them, the light bulb had come on, and they had seen him and embraced him as Lord and Savior. And yet it seems that throughout his ministry, Jesus had had kind of shied away from making a public spectacle of who he was. In fact, many times, you may recall, if you've read much of the Gospels, when people recognized who he was and instantly saw that, Jesus would say to him, listen, don't, don't tell anyone what you've heard. Don't tell anyone what's been revealed to you. Keep that to yourself for now. In a very real sense, he was doing his ministry and he was displaying through his words and his works who he was, but he was making no public declaration that he was the Messiah. And we find that the gospel writers tell us time and again why he did that. They tell us time and again why he did that was because his time had what? Do you remember? Had not yet come. His time had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't time for him to be revealed fully for who he was. It wasn't time for him to make a public declaration of his true identity for all to see and all to observe. And he knew that when that day came, when that happened, when he actually made that declaration that it was going to begin to set in motion wheels that would end with a cross and a tomb. And so Jesus didn't set those things in motion because he was purposely working on the Heavenly Father's timetable. God had appointed a time for everything in the ministry of Christ, and he had appointed a time for the cross. He had appointed a time for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and to expose the world to who he was, and ultimately for that to lead him to, to the cross where he would die as a substitute for us. And so when we get to chapter 12, Jesus understands that the time has come. The time has now come. It's now time for these things to set in motion. It's now time for him to make a public declaration of who he is, his true identity. And it's time for the cross to be in the crosshairs, so to speak. And so Jesus takes his disciples, and they had gone away from Jerusalem because of the heat that was generated from the religious leaders who had determined to kill him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and it was an irrefutable proof of his messianic power, and people were believing in him. You have Lazarus walking around, the dead guy now, talking and giving testimony to what Christ had done. It was irrefutable proof of who he was. And the religious leaders went nuts. They just went absolutely mad over this. And they knew that the only way to stop Jesus was going to be to kill him. And so they determined to do just that, to kill him. Now, in their minds, the plan was, they, I, I believe, they, they were wanting to get beyond Passover. Because they understood Jesus' popularity. And they understood that, that at Passover, the crowds were going to be swelling. And it was going to be very difficult to pull this thing off. Because there were many in the crowds who were believing in Jesus. And so I believe, at least this is my take on it, that their plan initially was to, to push this off beyond the Passover. But that wasn't God's timetable, was it? No, God had appointed a time for all this to take place. And what Jesus does in John chapter 12, in the text that we look at this morning, is going to move their timetable up. It's going to expedite their plan. It's going to be so obvious, and it's going to be so public, and it's going to be so large and significant, that they're going to have no choice but to begin immediately trying to do what they have to do to get him dead. 
And so Jesus in chapter 12, John is telling us, turns his attention back toward Jerusalem. He's going back to Jerusalem. He's going back kind of into the teeth of the lion, so to speak. And he's going back there. The gospel writers make clear he's going back there for one purpose. And that purpose is on Friday to die for the sins of the world. That's what he's doing. On his way back to Jerusalem, he makes one stop in Bethany. We looked at this last week. At the home of some dear friends of his. Do you recall? Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the man whom he raised from the dead. They were dear friends. No doubt there were other dear friends in that town. And we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 12 that Jesus makes a brief stopover before he heads to Jerusalem for the final time in the home of these dear friends. And he visits with them. He spends some time with them. No doubt they uh, enjoyed one another's company and fellowship. They probably laughed together. They probably reflected on their, their time together. Apart from Jesus, I don't think anyone knew what was coming down the pipe this week. But we saw them share a meal together in the home of a man named Simon the leper. Or better, I think we better identified him last week as Simon the former leper, right? And they shared this wonderful meal. And in the midst of that beautiful meal, Mary, this dear friend, this wonderful, remarkable disciple of Jesus, Shocks everybody by anointing Jesus with this extremely expensive anointing oil. A beautiful act of pure devotion and love and worship. And we marveled at Mary's action last week. And it was fitting because it also represented the anointing of a corpse for burial, which was going to happen in just a few days. A foreshadowing, a picture of what was to come. We pick up the story right after that in chapter 12, verse 12, by uh, uh, John telling us, well, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast. Now, we, we need to, to pause for just a moment here, and I want to try and, and, and put us on the right timetable. Now, let me just preface what I'm about to say here by saying, there is some debate about the exact timetable of how things develop throughout the week after the dinner uh, that we looked at last week. Um, there's a traditional timetable that says that when John is telling us here the next day, um, these things begin to happen, that we're talking about Sunday. All right, so let's look at a timetable here, and I want to try and get us on the path. There are two ways of looking at this. I have a preference. You might disagree. That's fine. Um, but I'm going to stick with the timetable that I think makes the most sense. But I'm going to give you the traditional timetable. We know one thing. We know one thing, that the dinner happened on Saturday, that Jesus comes to Bethany on Saturday. We know that part because John gives us a time clue. Do you remember what the time clue was? Did you catch it in the earlier part? He tells us six days before the Passover, Jesus entered Bethany. Okay? Passover is what day? Passover is going to be Friday. Sabbath is Saturday. But Passover is Friday. So six days before that is going to be Saturday prior. Okay? So that's the day that John tells us Jesus enters into Bethany. He comes to Bethany, and it's that evening that he shares this meal with Lazarus and Mary and Martha at the home of Simon the leper on Saturday night. Um, now, if you look back in the chapter, um, they have the meal at the beginning of the chapter. And then somewhere around verse 9, uh, we didn't talk too much about this last week. Uh, we won't really this morning either, but I'm going to read it for you. It says, when the lar- uh, right after this um, incident with Mary happens at the dinner, John tells us a large crowd of Jews learned of Jesus was there when this happened. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. And so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Isn't that great? If you're going to kill Jesus, you better go ahead and take Lazarus out as well, right? Because, I mean, he's a walking dead guy. And uh, if you're going to shut this movement down, you've got to shut down the evidence along with the perpetrator. And uh, so, you know, just a quick note there. Isn't it remarkable that 
you know, how quickly we saw last week how easy it is to justify murder. That these guys did it. Uh, but once you justify murder once, it's not that big of a leap to justify it a second time, is it? So you're going to kill one guy. What's the, what's the difference between killing two? If you determine in your mind that that's expedient, right? So that's what they determined to happen. Uh, and they did it because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So we've got, when does this take place? Here's the question. Verses 9 through 11. When does this large crowd of Jews learn that Jesus is there and come out and gather around uh, to see him and to see Lazarus? When does that take place? Well, the traditional view is that that must have taken place also on Saturday uh, because Jesus picks up in verse 12 with the next day. Uh, going into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry being on Sunday. That's why traditionally we know that Sunday before Easter, we call it what? Palm Sunday, because it's the Sunday on which people put the palms out uh, for the triumphal entry. Um, I think a better take on this, uh, it, 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 there's a weakness to that. Because if you track through the rest of the week, we find that the gospel writers give us excruciating detail about all of the events that happened in this week. Literally every day, we get details of everything that Jesus did for the most part. But in the traditional timeline, if you track it this way, if you say Saturday he came to Bethany, Saturday the crowd gathered, Saturday they had a dinner, and the next day, Sunday, he goes to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, um, then you have some events that take place on Monday and Tuesday, but you're left with a Wednesday with zero information. Nothing. You have what's known as the Silent Wednesday. Have you ever heard that before? Where there's no information about what takes place on Wednesday. And then the story picks up again on Thursday with some events that take place, culminating with the, the, uh, the final supper, the Lord's Supper that evening, and then the crucifixion taking place on Friday. It doesn't seem to make much sense to me on two counts, because number one, why would the gospel writers give us so much detail? I mean, all these chapters of detail on what happens in this final week. Details about Monday, details about Tuesday, details about Thursday, details about Friday, right up through the resurrection, and then leave us with a day with no information. Doesn't seem to make sense. Also, what do you do with verses 9 through 11 here in John's Gospel? Um, You have to squish those back to Saturday and have all these things happening on Saturday and nothing on Wednesday. The timeline that seems to make more sense to me is this. Saturday, the arrival in Bethany, six days before Passover. We have that time marker. There's a dinner at Bethany. Jesus anoints, uh, is anointed by Mary. Then on Sunday, it seems to me that verses 9 through 11 take place here. That Jesus remains in Bethany with, with his friends, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He spends the day there. The crowds hear that he's there. They hear about Lazarus. And they come out, and these verses 9 through 11 uh, take place on Sunday. The large crowd of Jews learns that Jesus is there, and they come on out. And the crowd begins to gather in Bethany. So then, when we pick up with verse 12, the next day is going to be what day? It's going to be Monday. So now Monday becomes the day when these events in in verses 12 through 19 take place, known as the triumphal entry, the stuff that we're looking at this morning. Now, with that timeline, it helps us place verses 9 through 11 in in the chronology. It also moves the timeline forward, so now that we don't have an empty day in the middle of the week, this happens on Monday and everything shifts the day, so that we have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, a full timeline picture. Does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? There's some other symbolism here that I think is important. The Passover is Friday. What would be happening on Monday of the Passover is very significant if you were a Jewish family preparing for the Passover. Because on Monday of the Passover week, as a Jewish family, that would be the day that you would go and you would select and you would select and bring home your Passover lamb. 
Your Passover lamb that was going to be slaughtered and butchered and killed for your Passover meal. So think with me on this. And we're going to see the details that take place throughout this week fulfill prophecy in so many ways to the tiniest little degree. Doesn't it seem to even on a, just on that level seem to make sense that on the day that the Jewish families are going out to select their Passover lamb and to receive that Passover lamb into their home, that Jesus, the final ultimate Passover lamb, enters into Jerusalem. That the final Passover lamb shows up on the day that people are going out to get their lambs and bring them home. The day that they slaughter their lambs is going to be the day that he's slaughtered. That timeline makes sense to me. At best accounts for John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, and it eliminates the problem of a silent Wednesday. So that's what I'm going to go with. Um, if you don't like that, if you just like Palm Sunday, then stick with Palm Sunday. The Lord won't strike any of us with lightning, I don't think. Um, so I, I just want you to understand why I'm calling this Palm Monday instead of Palm Sunday. Does that make sense now? Uh, you don't know. I don't know. We'll just go with it, all right? All right, here's what happens. Um, here's what happens. We're going we're gonna to look at this in two ways. Uh, what happens on this day, this next day? We're going to look at the return of the king to Jerusalem, and then we're going to look at the reaction of the crowd. That's the two things that we get in this text. Jesus returns, and the crowd reacts. And we're going to look at both of those. So let's look at the return of the king first, verses 14 through 16. John tells us, on the next day, this is what happens. Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then he gives us an interpretive note. He says, look, the disciples didn't understand these things at first. But later, when Jesus was glorified, that's after the resurrection, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what happens on this day? The next day, on Monday, Jesus finds, John tells us, a young donkey. Now, John simply states for us the detail, which has a much larger backstory. If you've read the other Gospels, then you know that more happened than what John tells us, right? Do you know that? John just says he went and found a young donkey. But the other Gospel writers tell us that there's more to a story, more to the story than just that, right? Look with me at Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 7. Mark gives us, as uh, Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to know who Paul Harvey is. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Mark tells us the backstory. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, um, to Beth Fagi, I learned how to pronounce that word this week, by the way, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went out and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Matthew gives us his backstory as well, and he gives us some more information. He tells us that there's two. There's actually a, 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 a mother donkey and a colt, a younger donkey as well. So when you put the stories together, you get a really interesting thing that happens here. John doesn't tell us about but the others do. Jesus says to them, go to the town, and you're going to find two donkeys. Go get them. Bring them to me. If anybody asks you, what are you doing? And, you know, you walk into a town and you just grab someone's donkeys, probably somebody's going to ask you, what are you doing, Right? Right? Okay, all right, I think so. Even today that would happen, you know. 
Somebody walks into your yard and puts keys in your car and says, I'm taking off. You're going to say, what are you doing? Um, absent cars, donkeys. Okay, you get the picture. So this is what happens. And this is a miraculous, it's a miraculous event. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows where these donkeys are. He knows exactly how this is all going to play out. And he wants these guys to go and to do it and to bring them back. And he wants to for a purpose, a very real purpose. Now, we don't know if the people who owned the donkeys were believers and, you know, it seems like they might have been, right? Why are you taking my donkeys? The Lord has need of it. Okay, take them. Um, Perhaps they were believers. Perhaps they knew who the Lord was and were glad to allow the donkeys to be used for his purpose. Perhaps not. Perhaps it was just a sovereign work of God in their hearts to where they just said, you know what? All right. And they took the donkeys. In either case, in either case, It was a detail of the story that was intentionally orchestrated by Jesus. Because, as we're going to see, what he does in coming into Jerusalem is is going to be an exact fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And Jesus intends to fulfill the prophecy. He intends to do so. He orchestrates events so that he will. And so that everyone who sees and hears and watches will know that that's exactly what he's doing. He's provocative in doing this. And I will say this repeatedly as we walk through this last week of the life of Jesus. Jesus was not a helpless victim of chaotic circumstances that were swirling out of control. Every single detail of what happens in this week, no matter how chaotic it might have looked at ground level on the day, was orchestrated by, planned by, and sovereignly worked in accordance with the perfect will of God. And Jesus knew it. Every detail. From the moment that he set his mind toward Jerusalem, the moment he headed back in that direction, every detail was planned by him. Every detail of every circumstance was more than planned by him. You could even say that the events that take place are provoked by him. He intends for these plans to play out just as they do. And what he does by getting this donkey and by playing out this entry into Jerusalem is going to absolutely provoke the religious leaders to speed up their plans to kill him. Now, There are minor characters in the story, the donkey owners. But I do think it's worth noting, all they needed to hear was the Lord has need of it. And they were willing to give it. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? I mean, if all of us had that kind of a heart for for the Lord, right? I mean, with our time, with our talents, with the resources that God gives us. if, if, If all of us, if all we ever needed to hear was, look, the Lord has need of what you've got. If we were willing to say, all right, if the Lord has needs, then he's got it. Whatever that meant. Boy, our lives would look different. The kingdom would look different. Instantly, they let them go. It wasn't an inexpensive sacrifice, but it didn't matter because the Lord needed it. So they gave. And gladfully so. As we're going to see throughout this last week, Jesus is going to fulfill many, many, many Old Testament prophecies. All, in fact, of the Old Testament prophecies that speak to and pointed to the first coming of the Messiah are going to be fulfilled in the person and the work and the actions of Jesus, either in his life and ministry or in what takes place in this last week. He, he is going to show himself to be the, the Messiah that all of the Old Testament prophets pointed to. He's going to show himself to be that. The Jews knew the prophecies. They had been schooled in the Old Testament. They knew them. They understood the prophecies that pointed to Messiah. So when they saw some of these fulfillments, they were going to recognize them as exactly that. And that's what they're going to do on this particular day. But they're going to completely misinterpret all those things because they have a preconceived notion that's wrong. What they hate more than anything is living under Roman rule. They hate that. 
They hate that Israel is not its own independent nation, that it doesn't enjoy the the prominence and the glory that it has in days gone by. And they longed for and they prayed for the day when, when Messiah would come and lead them by his power out from under Roman rule back to glory and back to the dominance of the nation of Israel, back to the, to the glory of the days gone by. And that was their vision of what Messiah was going to do. So even though they understood the prophecies relating to the Messiah, they thought that when he came, he would lead them out of Roman bondage and lead the nation through power and perhaps even through military might back to its national prominence. And that's what they longed for, and it's what they wanted more than anything. John and the Gospel writers are going to make clear to us that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not that kind of Messiah, right? He's not that kind of Messiah. He has not come to fulfill that purpose. He did not come to overthrow Roman rule. He did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to overthrow the rule of sin, death, and hell over the hearts of men. And he came to die as a substitute for his people, paying the price not for their political or national freedom, but paying the price for their spiritual freedom. That's what he came for. A much bigger mission. And he intends to do that by purchasing it with his own blood on Friday. And here John shows us that Jesus is fully aware of Old Testament Testament messianic prophecy, and he intentionally orchestrates the fulfillment of that. What takes place here in Jesus sending to get the donkeys, and then bringing the donkeys back, and in him getting on the younger of the donkeys, the colt, and riding into into Jerusalem that way, was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah 9 9 through 10. Zechariah writes it this way. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and what? Mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Verse 10, he goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, he, this is the, the Messiah who's going to come on the donkey. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is going to come mounted on a donkey. And his rule ultimately is going to be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Just not the way they conceived of it. Right? And so Jesus understands his prophecy. He intentionally, publicly, and provocatively arranges for the donkey cult so that he can fulfill it publicly. And in doing this, in doing this, you need to understand the significance. In doing this, in coming this way, and in intentionally doing this to fulfill this prophecy, Jesus is for the first time now publicly declaring, I am Messiah. That's who I am. Anyone who will look, anyone who will see me riding on this donkey, anyone who will see me coming to Jerusalem in this manner will know I am proclaiming publicly that I am he. I'm the one that Zechariah spoke of. I'm the one that all the Old Testament prophets spoke of. So he's claiming to be the promised king of Israel. And the crowd's going to get it, and they respond the way they do because they get it. And it's so symbolic, isn't it, that Jesus comes on this donkey? How did... Just from what you know of history, when, when a great battle was won, how would, the, how would the king ride back into town after the victory normally? On what kind of an animal? On a valiant steed of some sort, right? Maybe a, a white horse would be the ultimate sign of power and victory in battle. That would be the way a king, a victorious king, would ride back into town with all the pomp and circumstance of celebration of victory behind him. That's how a, a, a battle king would ride. But Jesus, the real king, doesn't ride that way. 
He rides on the lowliest, a pack mule, a pack animal, the youngest of the two, the youngest, most humble means of transport possible. And by the way, it's the only time I know of in the Gospels where we see Jesus riding anything. He walks everywhere else. But today he rides. He rides on this little colt. And he does so to fulfill this prophecy. He does so also, I think, to declare what kind of king he is. He is the king. He is the Messiah. But he's not the kind who comes in victory in battle. He's the kind who comes humbly. He's the kind who comes to make peace, to make peace between men and God, to make peace between men and one another, those who will believe on him. He's that kind of a king. The Bible tells us he's going to come on a white horse one day, right? Book of Revelation tells us that the second time he comes, he will come as a battle victorious king on a white, on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth symbolically coming to bring judgment on the nations. He'll ride a white horse, but he doesn't on this day. This time he comes on the colt of a donkey. He's no threat to the establishment. He's no threat to the Romans. The next time he'll be on a white horse, and he'll be a threat to everybody who doesn't believe on him. And so Jesus gets this colt of a donkey, and he sits on it, and he rides into Jerusalem. Now, this is going to draw a reaction, right? I mean, it's going to draw a very serious reaction. And we see the reaction really in two parts here, in verses 12 and 13, and then on the end in verses 17 through 19. Listen, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Skip down to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. All right, so let's let's track this together. Jesus gets on the colt and he heads towards Jerusalem, that short trek over to Jerusalem. And there's a crowd that gathers, but it's really two crowds. Did you catch that? There's two crowds, and they're coming from both directions. So crowd number one we see in the first part, the large crowd that had come where? To the feast, which is happening where? Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a crowd in Jerusalem that had gathered there for the feast, okay? A large crowd, probably for the Passover. It would have been hundreds of thousands of people swarming into Jerusalem. It had been a massive crowd there for Passover. So some large portion of that crowd is in Jerusalem. And what happens? They heard that Jesus was coming, was on his way to Jerusalem. So they do what? They go out towards him to meet him. All right? At the back, we hear... There's another crowd, a crowd that had been with him where? Okay, back in Bethany when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him. So this crowd that was there for the Lazarus event and the crowd that had gathered on that Sunday was already in Bethany. So they were traveling with Jesus back toward Jerusalem. So as this event begins to play out, you have Jesus coming toward the city and these two significantly large crowds kind of converge or collide like a wave together that culminates with this celebratory Entry into the city. And it would have been a remarkably large crowd. And the scene would have been, it would have been loud. It would have been a scene that resembled worship unlike anything that had been seen for quite some time. Jesus would have at that moment been at the height of popularity. The absolute height of popularity, right? 
You have Jews who, who had heard of his miracle working power in raising Lazarus from the, from the grave, and they wanted freedom from Rome, and they were looking for their Messiah, and they were thinking, hey, maybe this is the guy. If he can bring a dead guy from the grave, he might be able to use that miracle power uh, to throw off the Romans, right? So let's go out and find out what's going on here. And then you have Gentiles who had been uh, around all throughout Galilee during Jesus' ministry, and they had heard him teach, and they had seen his works, and they were also following along based on the miracles and the teaching. And it becomes a massive crowd. And initially, it looks like the people are finally recognizing his true identity and, and, and giving to him the honor due his name, doesn't it? That's what it looks like. It looks like finally people have gotten it. Finally, the people have understood who he is. Finally, they're going to fall down and worship him for his rightful place and identity as Messiah. That's what it looks like. You think, yeah, these crowds are getting it. But unfortunately... A large crowd doesn't necessarily mean a good crowd. You know, it's interesting. One of the main criteria that seems to be prevalent in our culture today for evaluating any church or any ministry is solely based on the size of the crowd that they're able to generate. We look around and people look around and they say, well, look at this church. I mean, look at the crowd that comes to that place. I mean, they've got it really going on for Jesus over there. And then they look at other churches and say, well, you know, what's wrong with these guys? They've only got, you know, a small crowd coming out there. What's they hardly have anybody. And the criteria is the size of the crowd. I hope that if you get something out of this last part, you'll understand that as we look at this crowd, we're going to learn one very significant truth that we need to get in our hearts and get in our soul, that the size of a crowd has absolutely nothing to do with the rightness of the crowd. A crowd is not the same thing as a church. There is a significant difference. And just because a movement is able to generate a crowd doesn't necessarily mean that it's right with God, on target with God, or even close to being right in any of those ways. Because we're going to see today that this crowd that rivals any crowd that's going to gather anywhere today to worship Jesus, this crowd is going to be woefully wrong, woefully inadequate, and far, far from understanding who Jesus is and being willing to worship him. Let's look at that crowd a little bit and get that. What are they doing? He tells us they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. Well, John's the only one who gives us this detail. The other gospel writers don't say anything about palm branches. They talk about branches, and they talk about people putting their garments out on the street in front of Jesus for him to come. Uh, But John mentions palm branches. And palm branches, really in the Old Testament, were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. But during the intertestamental period, okay, that's a big word. You know what the intertestamental period is? That's the period of time, the the several hundred years, the centuries between the end of the Old Testament and the commencing of the New Testament. There's a big chunk of history in there um, called the intertestamental period. During that time, some things took place historically. And in the midst of all that, there's some rebellion against Rome that that comes into full-blown rebellion in Israel and in Jerusalem. And there's some some moments where the, the... uh, the Jewish rebels have success in throwing off the Romans temporarily. Um, you can find some of that recorded in the apocryphal books of the Maccabees. But it's during this time that palm branches kind of become a symbol of celebration and victory. I mean, it's just a general symbol of national celebration and national victory. And so when they, John tells us they're, they're waving palm branches and putting palm branches in the road, it's just a way of him saying they're celebrating this for them. It's national victory. This is national victory and national celebration. Why? Because they think he's the Messiah who's come to lead their nation to victory. The palm branches tell us that. What are they saying? They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Did that sound familiar to, it, to you when we read it in John chapter 12 a second ago? It should, because we just read it in Psalm 118 just before that. Um, that's a quotation from Psalm 118. Hosanna, it's just a term of praise and celebration. It literally means save now, I pray. But by the time this takes place in the first century, it it likely is just a a, a term or an exclamation of celebration and victory. Something like hooray or something like that, perhaps, even in our day. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 118.26 of the psalm. These two pieces that they're saying are part of Psalm 118. Anytime the Jews had a big celebration or festival, the, the choir, the choir in Jerusalem, you know what they would sing every morning? It's called the Hallel. It's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Every morning, that's what would be sung at the celebration. It would include these, these phrases and these statements. And so these, these, this crowd is, is singing what would have normally been sung at the temple, what they knew, and they are attributing to Jesus these titles and these Songs of praise. They even call him the king of Israel. Everything about what this crowd is saying and doing on the surface looks like genuine worship, doesn't it? They're saying the right words. They're doing the right things. And upon just seeing this as an outside observer, we would be tempted to look at this crowd and say, you know, this is the real deal. These people get it. But when we look at their motives that John gives us, we see that they're not. What are the motives of this crowd? Why are they doing this? Why are they saying the right things and going through the right motions of worship towards Jesus? What is their motivation going on here? He tells us two particular things that are so critical for us to understand. Number one, their first motive is this. Selfish, false expectations. Self-centered, false expectations particularly the Jewish portion of this crowd. They want a king to deliver them by force from the Romans. That's what they want. This is what they want. This is what they expect. And it is not a right understanding of who Jesus actually is. They have dreamed up in their minds a Messiah that is not the true Messiah. It's a Messiah of their own making, a Messiah that's built out of their own selfish desires. It's a Messiah built on their own false expectations that they've created. It's the Messiah that they've made up themselves is what they're expecting. A Messiah who will come and give them what they selfishly want. A Messiah who doesn't come to be served, but a Messiah who comes to serve them. A Messiah who doesn't come to deliver them and their hearts and their souls from the sin that holds them in bondage, but a, a Messiah that comes to give them the political and national freedom that they want. They have dreamt up a self-centered Messiah, and they have built this whole this whole scheme of false expectations of who Messiah is and what he's going to do. And to them, the Messiah is going to be their great vending machine. He's going to, just, he's going to come and they're going to push the button. And he's going to give them what they selfishly want. And get this. When it becomes clear that that's not why he's come, do you know what happens to this crowd? They're gone in a second. They're gone in a second. The moment they realize Jesus has not come to do these things, the moment that they realize that the true Messiah has come, but he hasn't come to do what they selfishly have desired and dreamed up that he was going to do and that they expect him to do, when he does not meet their selfish expectations, do you know what they do? They run away. And they're gone. And the people that on this day are crying Hosanna in just a few days are going to be screaming, crucify him. That's how fickle the crowd is. 
They had designed for themselves their own idea of a Messiah. And when Jesus didn't measure up, they abandon him and they turn on him. You know, that kind of crowd is still very prominent hanging around Christianity today. You don't have to look long and you don't have to look hard to find them. They come to Jesus purely on the basis of what can he do for me. They've envisioned Jesus as being a Messiah who exists only for one reason, and that's to solve their problems and to make their life happy and and good and easy. They come to Jesus because, not because they see him as the Messiah, not because they understand their desperate need for a Savior, because they're sinners whose sin has, has separated them from Almighty God and has bought for them eternal hell and the judgment of God, and they know they desperately in their hearts need someone to die in their place. No, they see Jesus as the answer to all their selfish desires. He's the Messiah who's going to come and give me everything that I want. He's the Messiah who's going to come and fulfill all my desires and fulfill all of the things that I need. I need more money, so if I go to Jesus, he's going to fill my bank account. I'm struggling with my health and I need somebody to heal me. So if I go to Jesus, he's going to heal me. And marriage is in trouble. If I go to Jesus, he'll fix it. My sex life isn't what I want it to be. So if I go to Jesus, he'll make it, he'll make it spicy again. Depressed and I need help. So I'll go to Jesus. He'll fix me. It's all about coming to Jesus, a self-created Messiah who's built around doing nothing but fulfilling my own selfish needs and wants and desires. And there are tons of people in our culture who have come to Jesus with that kind of set of expectations. And we have a whole branch, a whole, a whole swath of the Christian evangelical world of churches and pastors who are selling Jesus as that kind of a Messiah who are standing in pulpits just like this this morning in other places, and that's exactly who they're saying Jesus is. They're presenting him as that. Come to Jesus, and he'll fulfill all your selfish desires. You need money? Come to Jesus. He'll give it to you. You need help with something? Come to Jesus, and he'll fix it. And it's a false gospel built off of a false Messiah who consistently disappoints. You know, as a pastor, I'd run into people all the time who've walked away from the church. And you begin to talk to them about what happened. And you find out, a lot of times, they came to Jesus under the pretenses. They were sold a Jesus who was going to fix all their problems. They came to Jesus on those terms. And guess what happened in their life? All their problems didn't get fixed right away. The cancer stayed around. The marriage still had problems. They still struggled with their financial life getting it in order. They still battled discouragement and depression over a period of time. And so you know what they conclude? This Jesus thing don't work. And they walk away. Why wouldn't they? Because they've come to Jesus on the basis of their own self-centered false expectations. And when Jesus didn't measure up, they're gone. That's what this crowd does. And that's what people are doing all around us today. You know, for us, it's an instructive to us to make sure we get the gospel right. Don't sell Jesus as a Messiah that he's not. Sell him as the Messiah that he is. There's something people need a whole lot more than their own fleshly desires being fulfilled. They need their souls to be saved. They need their sin to be eradicated. They need the judgment of God to be removed from them and placed on the cross of Jesus Christ where his blood is shed on their behalf. 
They don't need their, 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 their earthly lives to be pampered and padded. They need their eternal life to be secured. This crowd doesn't get it, though. They're like so many in our day. Selfish, false expectations. There's a second motive we see from John here. There are some who come like this, but there's a whole other portion of this crowd that's coming for one other thing. Just pure entertainment. Just pure entertainment. Coming to Jesus and being a part of this event on Palm Monday is just for them. It's pure entertainment. Look at verses 9 and verses 18 of chapter 12. Look at how we see this. John gives us a glimpse of this. He says in verse 9, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but why? To see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And we come down to verse 18. Many people, because they heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. It wasn't because he was the Messiah who had come to redeem their souls. It was because Jesus had done a trick. He had done a trick. He had raised a dead guy. And, and I mean, they're, they're thinking in their minds, you know, I missed out when he raised the last dead guy, but he's coming again. I'm not going to miss out on what he's going to do this time. It's all pure entertainment driven. They, they want to go see Lazarus. They want to go see the, the circus sideshow guy, the guy who was in the grave four days and dead, and now he's alive again. It's just nothing more than entertainment for them. They just want to be entertained. They were following Jesus for the sake of novelty. They don't want to miss out on the show. It's not about loving Christ. It's not about believing Christ. It's not about committing to Christ. It's about checking out the latest fad, the latest magician, the latest miracle worker who's come into town. And you know what? As a pastor, you you don't see this um, because you don't get the mail I do, but I can tell you as a pastor, my mailbox and then my trash can gets filled up, gets filled up with some of the most unbelievable stuff that you wouldn't believe. And I don't want to show it to you and defile you in such a way. But these prepackaged, pre-marketed plans, and they're all, they all come with shiny covers and they're glossy and they have in big letters things like, how to double the size of your church in three weeks, you know? Buy our plan and your church will grow. Give us your 99.99 or your 29 a month or whatever. And we'll show you how to attract a crowd. And you know what? All of them, when you boil them all down, they come to, uh, you know, some, some same themes. Cut down on the preaching. Don't take hard stands on moral issues. Ramp up the entertainment. Because they know, they know that'll draw a crowd. They know if you can put on a good enough show, you can get people to come see it. They know how that works. More entertainment, less preaching. More touching the emotions, less content. The problem with that is, whatever you use to hook a crowd, you're going to have to keep doing to keep them. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I'm praying for a crowd of people to one day fill this this room multiple times on a Sunday. I'm praying for a crowd of people who will be hungry and thirsty for the Word of God, who will want to study it who want to, to seek the deep things of the Lord, who want more than anything to love Him, to worship Him, to, to commit their lives to Him, to lock arms with one another and study and learn and grow and then go out in the world and make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that kind of crowd. I don't want this kind of crowd. I don't want this kind of crowd. It's not worth it. This kind of crowd that's gathered on Palm, Palm Monday, see, I almost said it, They're fickle. They're fickle because their motives are wrong. 
They're coming for the entertainment. They're coming for the show. Or they're coming because they've dreamed up a false Messiah who solely exists to meet their own selfish desires. And when Jesus doesn't do either one of those things, they're gone. They are gone in a second. Absolutely gone. By the time we get down to John chapter 19, the same crowd's going to be shouting, Take him away. Crucify him. That's how the crowd is when you draw them like this. As long as it's a popular thing, they're with it. But when it gets hard, they're out. As long as it's entertaining and easy and free, they'll gather. But when there's a cost associated with it, gone. Just a few verses later in verses 24 and following, Pastor Frank's going to be talking to you about that and preaching that. Jesus is going to say to this crowd, this crowd that's come on these pretenses, you know what he's going to say to them? He's going to say with them, if you want to follow me, I'm going to die. Come die with me. Come die with me. And then he's going to tell people, as he's been telling them all along, things like this. If you want to be a follower of mine, you have to take up your cross every day. You have to die every day and follow me. Following me is not about having all your selfish desires on this planet fulfilled. It's about dying to those desires And following me. You want to follow me? It's not about me entertaining you with my miracles. You want to follow me? Just die to yourself. Take up your cross. And wherever I go, you follow. That's his message. But that's not what this crowd wants to hear. Because they're not true worshipers. No, true worshipers are the opposite, aren't they? They're not selfish. They're not self-centered and demanding. They're, they're others-centered and they're humble. They're not fickle. They're not in one day and out the next day. They're committed and they're consistent. They're not entertainment-oriented, just looking for the latest show. They're service-oriented, looking to serve the Lord and others. That's what true followers look like. And that is not what makes up this crowd. If you don't hear me this morning, hear it again. Don't confuse a crowd with a church. It's not the same thing. The church is not a a big gathering spot where you come to get your religious fix each week. It's not even a place where you come to get miracles from the Lord. It's a gathering of dead people who've died to themselves and live for Christ alone, wherever he leads. That's what we learn from this crowd. That's what we learn from it. I pray that that crowd not be representative of you or me. I pray that we're not like them. I pray that our church is not marked by those kinds of characteristics. And I pray that God would grow the ministry that we're doing here, but that he would grow it with a crowd, the right kind. The kind, the kind that's made up of dead people who live for Jesus. And some artificial way of pumping up the numbers, just so it'll look on the outside like something good's going on. It's stupid, it's foolish, it's sinful. May God help us to never do that. May God help us never to be those kind of people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, um, we regard you as Messiah, and we marvel at what you did on that Monday. How you intentionally got the colt of this donkey, how you intentionally declared that you are Messiah for everyone to see. I can't imagine, Lord Jesus, what went through your mind as you rode through that crowd. And you listened to all of the worship that was coming your way, knowing full well 
that it was fraudulent, that it was fake, that it was the right words with the wrong heart, knowing that the faces that screamed Hosanna were in just a few days going to scream crucify. I marvel at you, Lord Jesus. You understood what was going on. No one else did. The disciples didn't get it. The crowd didn't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. But you understood. You knew what you came to do. You knew who you were. And your eyes were firmly set on Friday when you would die as a substitute for me. And I marvel at you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Marvel at you for showing me who you are. And as much as I would like for my needs of the flesh to be filled, Lord, I am grateful, eternally grateful, a million times over for what you've done for my soul. If you never heal another sickness, if I have this snotty nose for the rest of my life, I don't care. What you've already done for me in my heart and in my soul is infinitely more valuable. If the rest of my life is marked by suffering, it's a small price to pay for what you've already done. I worship you, Lord. And I pray for my friends who've gathered here today as well, that in their hearts they would worship you too. That they would see you for who you are, the Messiah who's come to die for them, to bleed for them. And that that would be enough. For that person who's here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would see you today as the Messiah who came to die and bleed for them. And who even at this very moment has outstretched arms saying, come to me. Turn from your sin and embrace me as Lord and Savior and I'll save your soul. I pray that they would do so today for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.